Thompson Guitars makes handcrafted instruments in Oregon. Their guitars are built with select tone woods, including Brazilian rosewood. Go to pktguitars.com for more information about their different models and appointments available from their custom shop. Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Welcome to season two of uh, Toy Heart. It only took us a few years and, I don't know, a global pandemic to get another season together. Uh, I'm really looking forward to you hearing what we have in store for you uh, for this season. You're going to hear from Alison Krauss and Larry Sparks and Mike Compton and Lori Lewis and, and Tim O'Brien and a lot of others. But before we get to the first conversation of the season, I just want to say I really appreciate all the kindness that you've sent the show on its first season. I, I shouldn't be doing this, but I went and read a bunch of the comments on our iTunes podcast page and they're really kind and wonderful. And they actually really help uh, the Reddit threads, which I really love. I spend a lot too much time uh, on Reddit. So the Reddit threads, and I really love reading those and they help as well. Um, so I just want to start out with some gratitude there. So thank you so much. And if you want to get in touch with the show and leave a comment or you know, go to our Instagram or, you know, leave a comment on Reddit. Know, know that I'm kind of, I'm skulking around there. So I, I really do appreciate it. Um, so to start off the season, I thought this was the right way. A conversation we tried our best to get for season one, but through the jigs and the reels, we couldn't really make it work. Today, our conversation with Sam Bush. Sam Bush, one of the most important musicians in the history of bluegrass, in particular, the development of the genre of new grass or like more progressive bluegrass music, the kind that plays to tens of thousands of people. Uh, Sam Bush is a member of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame, a member of the legendary new grass revival, uh, Amy Lou Harris and the Nash Ramblers, strength in numbers, truly one of the most influential mandolinists in the history of the music. He joined us uh, in a little office in Nashville. We were surrounded by guitars and we talk about how he started out as a fiddle player, how his dad made him play in front of Roy Acuff, what happens when you're a bluegrass player and you visit Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and you see the Grateful Dead. I mean, you could probably guess what happened there. And what Bill Monroe really thought of Sam and Newgrass Revival and, and so much more. And listen, if you're not already subscribed to our podcast, do me a favor, please do so. If you have someone in your life who likes bluegrass, if you have someone in your life who like got into the music through Billy Strings or, or Molly Tuttle and uh, wants to know more about the music, please pass the podcast on to them. It is so good to be back for season two of Toy Heart. Here's my conversation with Sam Bush. We've been looking forward to talking to you for a long Thanks. time, man. Thanks, you know, Tom. I mean, you feel like you are, we talked to you once before when Tony died, you came on and did a little bit of the, there you go. yeah, you Thank came you. on and talked a little bit about that. And that meant a lot to us. So just, I just want to get the idea of sort of maybe even in the very early days, Right. So your your father played the fiddle, Charlie. He played the fiddle and mandolin, and your mom sang and played guitar. Is that right? They they did, and you know, farmers in Kentucky. Uh, but my dad, he was the kind of fiddle player that he really just played for his own amusement, never professionally. Of course, uh, he didn't really do it in front of others, and he would host when I was a kid. Before I started playing music, I started playing mandolin at age eleven. He would uh, be the guy that hosted these fiddle jams at our house. So there'd be two or three fiddlers, maybe one or two guitar players. And that was it. And there was really not singing that went down. It was just these 
fiddle tunes. And my dad loved all that. But yeah, I noticed early on and go, I wonder why he never plays. And uh, so my dad actually developed an odd sense of rhythm in that he, he would either add a beat or leave a beat out. <laughs> and one day I was counting the way he played an old fiddle tune. I was counting the timing in my head. And I said, hey, Pop, do you realize you're playing that in seven, four time, which is like a lot of people have to go to jazz school to do. <laughs> he said, so I'm a jazz fiddler. <laughs> so he yeah. would have these, he would have these jams, but he wouldn't play himself. He wouldn't play. He and just wanted to have the music. Right? Yeah. The good fiddlers. And he wanted to hear him. He loved it. And then in turn, he had these, um, one of the things that was very influential for me was that he, he would buy the fiddle records by the, then the great grand Ole Opry fiddler, Tommy Jackson. And Tommy made these uh, fiddle albums of square dance numbers, and you could buy them with or without calls. In other words, these, um, my dad always bought them without the calls because he certainly didn't want to hear a square dance caller. So the calls, the ones with calls would be like there would be square dance calls on the They record. would be making with square dance calls so you could play them at the dance hall, play the recording real loudly, and, and you'd have you know the great Opry fiddler Tommy Jackson. But I learned to play first uh, you know, trying to copy these fiddle tunes by Tommy Jackson. On the Tommy Jackson album, there would be mandolin playing many times in unison melody with Tommy. So I'm just old enough that I got to play on some Nashville sessions and uh, with some of what was, you know, the originators of a team of Nashville session players. This particular guy who is a wonderful rhythm guitarist and people loved him. He played a Martin D 18, his whole career, Ray Edenton was his name. And uh, so I got to play a session with Ray Edenton and, and I was pretty thrilled about that. He was a legendary rhythm player. And um, come to find out, Ray and I got to talking, and he's a very nice guy. Said, uh, you know, it's mentioned that he played on the Tommy Jackson records. I went, whoa, okay. Because that's, I mean, and my dad bought these Tommy Jackson records. So anyhow, talking to Ray Edenton, he, he played guitar on those. And I was like, wow, who played the mandolin? Because that was really the first thing I tried to copy was the mandolin player on the Tommy Jackson records. He said, well, oh, well, on mandolin, he said, Red Rector, uh, who I know from Knoxville, East Tennessee, Red was a fine mandolin player. He said, Red Rector played a little bit of it, but mostly it was Hank Garland. Like and the I Hank only, Garland? Yeah, and I, I didn't, and I said, really? I didn't know Hank Garland played the mandolin. He said, well, he didn't really. He was just, uh, he was just such a good musician that uh, Tommy would teach him these tunes right before they, we cut them. He had never played them before, and Hank Garland was so good he could take a mandolin and play unison along with Tommy, and uh, that blew my mind. And basically, I started playing copying a guy that wasn't really a mandolin player. <laughs> and later, later to learn about Bill Monroe and, and bluegrass, and it was the instrument, the mandolin, that really led me to that. But the, the fiddle is where I find interesting with you, because so you obviously discovered early you had an aptitude for the fiddle, right? And from what I understand, you won three times the National Old Time Fiddle contest somewhere yeah somewhere around age 13 i started picking up the fiddle of course my dad really wanted me to be a fiddler fiddles his thing he wanted you to be a fiddler. he wanted you oh, to be yeah. the opry staff fiddler he actually like did that. want me to be the opry staff fiddler and of course the first thing i did was was to copy the tommy jackson fiddle records right and i was a fan of the the dillards 
uh, again, the, the love of the mandolin led me to all these bluegrass groups. And the Dillards were the young guys, you know, that are now on Electra Records. And uh, they didn't wear suits. They wore white jeans and these buckskin shirts. So, like, it was very cool. Is this after they were on Eddie Griffith or, like, around the same time? they were Around the same time, yeah, probably. Right, right. So, you know, I loved Dean Webb's mandolin playing at the Dillards. So, you know, I, I tried to I tried to copy all mandolin players that I heard. I loved Bobby Osborne and Jesse Mac Reynolds and Bill Monroe. But with the Dillards, all of a sudden they put out this record featuring a fiddle player from they were they said Caldwell, Kansas at the time. He's kind of like their farm was kind of on the border of Oklahoma, and Kansas. Byron Berline, the great fiddler. Yeah. So the Dillers put out this record, Byron Berline, and from the very first note of that record, it was like, holy mackerel, this is a whole different kind of fiddle play. And so Byron really, so then I really started trying to copy Byron Berline. It was kind of a, a cross between Southern fiddling and Texas fiddling. <laughs> Uh, so at age 14, went to Weezer, and there was a junior division, so uh, under 18. When you hit 18, then you had to go in the open division and compete against the adults. And um, so when I was 14, I, I came in fifth uh, the first year. And I'd really only been playing the fiddle probably a year and a half, so it was pretty you know, bold to enter a contest. But you would think – that around Kentucky, everybody was born with a fiddle in their hand, right? Well, that wasn't the case. When I was a kid, I didn't know any other kid fiddlers. And if anything, all the kids I knew that did play any kind of music, they certainly didn't want to play hillbilly style or bluegrass right. or any of that stuff. Right, because this was rock and roll. Yeah, we wanted to be the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're on TV now. And at uh, any rate, and in going to that first contest in Weezer, Idaho, where I came in fifth, the most valuable thing I did was meet Byron Berline, who was there. And uh, Byron had won the year before, and this is when I find out the best fiddler doesn't always win the contest because Byron was still hands and feet the best fiddler there. But a guy, a left-handed guy from Iowa won. <laughs> and I went, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. My hero didn't win. And he just, Byron said, oh, best fiddler doesn't always win. But I got to meet him, and he was and he was really nice to me, and even would correspond with me when I'd write him letters. He'd write me a letter back, and so it, that was really inspirational. And then I got to go at age 15, 16, and seventeen, and and those years I won. Yeah, um, your dad must have been proud of you. That must have been pretty exciting. I guess it was one of those kind of things where, you know, he was of the generation. It was never one of those. Come here, son. Let yeah. me hug you. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. That, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that came with my generation, yeah. <laughs> not, not <laughs> yeah. his. But yes, he was, of course. And he, um, you know, it's like when I was 16, perhaps, we went, I, I guess I'd won Weezer a couple of times, so went down to Texas. And boy, did I get my clock cleaned in, in the contest in Texas. I mean, there, so was, there was no placing. There was no, because uh, I went down and boy, did, that's where the, outrageously good kid fiddlers were Texas. Right. But in going to Texas and really taking a whooping, I learned more on that trip, you know, watching all their 
playing and learning what they were doing. It, it unlocked more doors for me for sure. And then I went down to this, we went to a couple of contests while I was in Texas and both of them, the junior division was under 30. So now I'm competing in a contest that Byron Burlines oh, wow. at. <laughs> so, well, that's not going to fly. Uh, but I learned more at the contest where I really was, you know, beaten pretty well. I mean, but it was, it, I, you know, that I came away, you know, learning more from that one. And, but, but when I got out to Weezer, Idaho, that's the first time I ever met other kid fiddlers and, 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 uh, you know, we were all pals, you yeah. know, it, we would compete, but it was fun and it yeah. was friendly. And I had, I had other friends that played the fiddle. I mean, that's such a powerful moment. Ricky Skaggs talked to me about that. And a lot of people have talked, Alison Brown talked to me about that, that like, you can think that you're the only person who's into this kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And then you could kind of meet your people. I think for Ricky, it was Keith Whitley. For Alison, it was Stuart Duncan. You know, like the idea that you meet that one person or those couple of people and you go, oh, I'm, I'm part of something bigger. And and we must, uh, we, you mentioned Ricky. I, it's got to be pointed out that Ricky was definitely an inspiration for me to want to play the mandolin because, um, I saw him play, you know, probably when he was eight or nine. Um, on the Flatten Scruggs show? No, before that, around Bowling Green, Kentucky, on Saturday afternoons at the courthouse in Bowling Green. What? Now, this is small town stuff. On Saturday afternoons at the courthouse, there would be a jam session in the courtroom, which wasn't <laughs> being used. And there'd, there'd be fiddlers and singers and guitar, country music. And I remember one day the, the, the Skaggs family came in and played some songs and little Ricky on the mandolin. And then not far from, uh, we lived out in the country and about seven miles past my dad's house, uh, we lived outside Bowling Green and on highway, U.S. Highway 231, about seven miles on towards uh, Owensboro from my dad's house, they built a TV station, and it was called WLTV, which stood for Wonderful Live Television. <laughs> so they had all these live shows. Yeah. And one of them was a Saturday Night Jubilee, where people just came from Tennessee and Indiana and around Kentucky to come play. And every, Of course, now I know everybody played for free, but, but they got on TV. So my dad and I would go down and just watch people play and hear them. And uh, some of those people became professional musicians. But Ricky Skaggs, young Ricky, was there on mandolin. And I remember just standing over in the parking lot watching the Skaggs family warm up. Later, I would play in a band with the banjo player in that band. But I, you know, we watched the Flatten Scruggs show every week. And I saw that one when it came on. And, and before he even said his name, I knew that was Ricky Skaggs. Right, right. So may, maybe seeing him on Flatten Scruggs really, you know, jump started me into going man i want to do that too but i just thought that was great that another kid played the mandolin like that and sing and so i wanted to do it too so ricky really was uh an inspiration for me to want to you know be a blonde-headed kid mandolin player too can you can you talk about one of the other sort of like transformative moments in your life is when you went to union grove right like you went to union grove in, in North Carolina, is that what it was called? Well, the Union Grove uh, Fiddle if fiddle Contest. And it was the it was New called. Deal String Band? Yeah, so this was this would have been, I was a senior in high school. And, and again, my parents were you know good to me in that. They'd let me go to these things, you know, and, and uh, go to functions and that they didn't go to. They were busy. You know, my mother worked at Sears. My dad's got to take care of the farm. And, you know, they both milked the cows when she got home yeah. and uh, from work. So who did you go with? A guitar player named Wayne Stewart. And uh, so we, we went, 
That's who you made Poor Richard's Almanac with, yes. right, Wayne and Alan Mundy? Yes. Yeah. So uh, we went over to Union Grove, and I I played in the fiddle contest. I don't recall placing or anything. Again, it was just a whole different kind of contest. But I was used to these more of the the Western contests where you know two tunes, uh, a hoedown, a, a waltz, and a tune of your choice. That is not a that is not a trick tune like Orange Blossom Special or the Mockingbird. You couldn't do any of that kind of stuff. But in Union Grove, that was just a whole different kind of thing. So the greatest thing that happened was that I, we st- I stumbled upon a, a group of hippies playing bluegrass music. So I was a senior in high school. So this was, I guess, around Easter weekend, uh, 1970. And I met the New Deal String Band, and, and I, got, you know, I got in a jam session with them and, and was friendly with their mandolin player, Frank Greathouse, and uh, New Deal String Band. And, you know, wow, hippies that play bluegrass. This is and we became friends. And then when I graduated from high school in June later that year, one of the first places that I went on the road was we went over to North Carolina after I joined the Bluegrass Alliance. Went to North Carolina and hung, you know, hung with them. And right. Went to the club they played at. And so really hanging with New Deal String Band and hearing that they could do like No Expectations by the Rolling Stones and make a bluegrass song out of it. I that was like, wow, okay. This is this is I like this hippie bluegrass stuff. Why why what did you like about it? I mean, I th- I think it's worth exploring this moment, right? Because like you, well, you because, are because it wasn't it wasn't Little Cabin Home on the Hill, and I was a fan of rock and roll. Yeah, uh, I actually got in trouble for uh, as the editor of the school paper earlier that year. I got in trouble for uh, I didn't realize you couldn't do this. Uh, the Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed album had come out. And not only did I love the Stones, but Byron played the fiddle on Country Honk. So that was, I was real, I knew that he'd done it. So I got, I got Let It Bleed. And inside Let It Bleed was a little flyer that you pulled it out and it had a picture of the Rolling Stones. As are, are you a member of the Rolling Stones fan club? And, you know, it gave all the information. So I just put it on the back of the school newspaper. And man, that's the, the day the paper comes out. Uh, Sam Bush, please come to the office. <laughs> um, principal was not pleased. I mean, maybe if it had been Vic Damone or something, yeah, it would have been, but damn sure not the Rolling Stones. And so I actually was sent home that day. Oh, no way. <laughs> and years later, I got to tell Keith Richards about it. <laughs> and he loved it. I'm glad to know I contributed to your delinquency. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you guys, you did it. You got me. Uh, so at, at any rate, but yeah, here, here in the New Deal string band, and uh, I was already listened to, influenced by people who had deviated from old kind of bluegrass because I was, as you know, I grew up listening to the Osborne Brothers and Jim and Jim Jesse, Jesse and the Country Gentlemen and the Dillards. And uh, so I was already turned on by that. A really great album that occurred in the in the 60s was the Charles River Valley Boys did a record called Beetle Country. All Beetle songs yeah. were bluegrass instruments produced by Paul Rothschild, the Doors producer. When I was young, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone to help in any way. But now those days are gone, I'm not so sad. And so that one was, again, I didn't know you could do that on these bluegrass instruments. It was beautiful. 
And even though you can listen to the record now, it sounds a little dated. They really were. It was really a cool record. I didn't know that the Charles River Valley Boys were really somewhat of a traditional band. Yeah. Uh, Joe Val, the mandolin player, I later became friends with. Wonderful yeah. person. Yeah. Um, so, but I was always into this. This, And then when the Dillards came out with Wheat Straw Sweet, now Great. they have yeah. orchestration and drums and electric bass. That record sounds like Pet Sounds to me. Like it sounds like the Beach Boys. It's me, awesome you know? to me. Yeah. And, that uh, Hey Boys song on that record. The Hey Boys. I love that record. I think, yeah. I think I need to work up the Hey Boys. And when they did it live, Mitch Jane always called it the, the Hey Boys. The Hey Boys. <laughs> the Hey Boys. And uh, here's the Hey Boys. Hey Boys, you think I'm getting old, sitting by the fire when the weather gets cold, don't care. But wasn't this an inflection point, though? Because like, I think it's worth bringing up that earlier you were like, my dad wanted me to be a, a Grand Ole Opry fiddler, you know? And all of a sudden your tastes are expanding, like the counterculture is happening. It's the 60s. For sure. And doesn't Acuff, Roy Acuff, who was like the star of the Grand Ole Opry. He was the biggest star. And he, you could have joined his band, is this right? That's, yep. When I got out of high school. Because that would have been the path, 1970. Right? Yeah. And uh, the Vietnam War was raging. And... Um, that was my biggest concern was staying out of the army. I was prime draft age. So, uh, but the word comes down through my father that uh, Acuff had called and uh, his great fiddle player, Howdy Forrester, didn't go on the road anymore. He worked at Acuff Rose Publishing, which of course I understood the what it would have done for me to get in with the guy who was, you know, own, basically owned Broadway. How did he know? How did he know about you? Well, we met when uh, my father and I came down to uh, Nashville. I was uh, probably maybe fifteen. We I, or fourteen, fifteen, fifteen, I guess. And I think I had won the Weezer contest once. So my dad and I came down, and we were uh, we had befriended the guy who uh, played fiddle with Hank Williams, Jerry Rivers. Now, Jerry would, was part of a group called the Homesteaders that would come up and play on the little Bowling Green station. So my dad realizing that's Jerry Rivers, who he really, you know, my, my father was an incredible Hank Williams fan. So we met Jerry Rivers down at the TV station. And Jerry said, well, if you ever come down to Nashville, I can get you backstage at the Opry. So he did. So we got to go wow. backstage at the Grand Ole Opry that wow. weekend. But the, that day before the Opry, we stopped in what was called, uh, it was between 4th and 5th on Broadway, uh, the Roy Acuff uh, Museum and Exhibit Hall, I think. So, you know, Roy Acuff had collected so many things over his lifetime of touring and gifts and memorabilia that he started a museum. So for, young, you know, country music people, it was pretty great. And, you know, that's like, you know, I you know, would have seen certain instruments that he had that I wouldn't had never seen before, like a Gibson F4 mandolin and... But lo and behold, we walk in, and there, in fact, is bashful brother Oswald taking the door at admission on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> you work in the museum? Yeah. And he and my dad uh, got to talking. My dad was not bashful about talking about his son that played the fiddle. Yeah. And so he was um, told Oz about me playing the fiddle, and my son's a fiddle champ. And I was, you know, standing there embarrassed, of course. And, um, but at any rate, Oswald runs back and gets a fiddle. And he said, well, you know, I, I have an Oswald invitation. I shouldn't do it. Boy, give me some of that fiddle now. <laughs> so, you know, so I played a couple of tunes. And there was a phone at the front desk. And Oswald dials the phone. 
he said, Roy, you better get down here. We got a boy that can fiddle. No way. And uh, within 45 minutes or an hour, Mr. Acuff showed up and I had to d- play in front of him. Again, you must have been, again, you must have been. terrifying. I'm yeah. embarrassed. Yeah. It was terrifying. And then later that night, uh, I got to meet Roy's fiddle player, the great, great fiddler, Howdy Forrest. Yeah, incredible. And Howdy played in a way that incorporated like the almost Canadian hornpipe style with, uh, you know, Howdy was originally from Texas. So the way Howdy played fiddle tunes was just his own beautiful way and, and really unique and very progressive. And I remember Howdy handing me his fiddle. You know, now I'm really scared to death. They called him Big Howdy. He was probably only five foot eight or nine, you know, but uh any rate, Big Howdy hands me that fiddle and I'm just terrified. So I guess my body language was kind of shrink somehow. And all of a sudden I was about to hit the first note and Howdy just kind of put his hand on my shoulder. Maybe something goes, Hey son, you play that fiddle. You stand up straight and play it proud. No. And I went, okay. You know, so right off the bat, Howdy Forrest is telling me, Hey, don't shrink away. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. It was just a heck of a night, a heck yeah. of a day, you know, yeah. that we got to meet Roy and his whole band and we went backstage, uh, at the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. And that very day was when I met Peter Rowan, who was the guitar player with Bill Monroe, who was friendly to me. Yeah, and they were playing the Opry that night? Yes. Same thing, yeah. So Bill I, Keith was in the band then too? No, it was after Bill Keith. There was, uh, and I became friends with this person, a left-handed banjo player named Don Lineberger. Great, great banjo player. Really yeah. fine. Yeah. A, Bobby yeah. Thompson's cousin, as a yeah. matter of fact. Oh, is that so? So he claimed. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. But Don was a very fine picker. And uh, yeah. so that was the first. And the fiddle player was Gene Loinger with Bill Monroe. Yeah. And James William on the bass. So, you know, it was a pretty magical night uh, that, that we got to get involved in all that. So after that, now Mr. Acuff owned, the way I understand it, he probably owned the whole block from 4th to 5th on Broadway. You know, that included Showbud Guitars and Shot Jackson, who used to play with Roy on Showbud. And so the back of Showbud Instruments and the exhibit kind of went into this room that was actually right off the back door. And there was a, a garage door there where Mr. Acuff would pull in his uh, his Lincoln and go in there. And that was Roy had his own room where they all warmed up and everything they wow. weren't in the back because the op the the Ryman auditorium at that time just had a just a few small rooms it right. was a very small backstage area and uh we and it would be a literally a run and fiddle jam session in Acuff's dressing room until just say 15 minutes for uh now uh Acuff and the Smoky Mountain Boys are about to play and all of a sudden he'd halt the fiddle jam and goes all right boys and they, they'd hit they'd hit the first tune they were going to go play right and so you know i'd watch this happen and so watching how acuff conducted himself in the band and the professionalism and what you do and and then they'd all march just right across the alley with their instruments in hand and go in and you know wow. play their spot on the opry incredible when when that phone call comes for you to join the band I mean, your dad must have been pretty excited and you have to he make was a, you have to make a big decision right it really wasn't that much of a decision in that I had in my mind I had a plan. I had I had been to Haight Ashbury when I was seventeen or sixteen in nineteen sixty eight and I saw the hippies and I saw the Grateful Dead way down the street and I saw the scene and I knew I wanted to be in on that. You know. You saw the I you saw the Grateful Dead in San Francisco when they were the I did. 
And I didn't say I heard them. I could see them down the street. Wow. I couldn't hear them. We were so far down Hate Street. Wow. I recently got to meet Phil Lesh and play on a song out of Telluride. And I said, you know, I was in, I was a kid way back in the crowd and you were about, you know, a half inch high in my mind's eye that I could see the band way off in the distance. Couldn't hear you though. He goes, no, nah, of course you're not. Of course you couldn't hear us. <laughs> but I said, what year would that have been? He thought it was 68. Wow. So I, in my mind, I pretty much left home the day after I graduated from high school to go to California and Clarence White was in the birds. So I was convinced that all I had to do was show up and they'd want me to join the birds too. <laughs> and um, uh, it was the guitar player, Wayne Stewart. We, we lit out for California yeah. and the close, the more we drove, the, the more I started thinking about it and going, God, what am I doing? What have I done? And go to LA, me, uh, you know, right, right off the farm. Oh man. And the time we got to Las Vegas, I chickened out and flew home. Oh, and it's probably one of the best things that I, that I ever did right. was to come back to back around here. But in terms of uh, Acuff's job offer uh, to play on in his road band, one, I wasn't that interested in that kind of music, and I I had not been a I I had played country music and you know, been part of uh, barn dance bands and what have you. I played the drums and square dance band, played the snare drum, played the fiddle and square dance groups and guitar and what have you, bass even sometimes. But I just, it didn't interest me. Uh, I didn't want to play my father's music. And maybe that was part of it. But Roy Acuff was my dad's music. And I didn't want to be in a band with everyone my dad's age. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be bluegrass or rock it, it really it was either bluegrass or rock for me so it really wasn't that much of a choice plus the first place mr acuff and the band were gonna go mm -hmm. to go play live was in fact vietnam and i wasn't going to vietnam in my mind under any circumstances yeah of course of course when you're 18 and headstrong you know that was more important then, as a matter of fact, getting a really big in with the king of country music who owned Acuff Rose Publishing and literally could do any damn thing he wanted to do on the Grand Ole Opry, such as one night when I was 16, my dad and I were standing there, and Acuff comes up to my dad and goes, go get his fiddle, I'm going to put him on. No. I didn't know what was going on. My dad just walked up the fiddle and bowl. He said, Roy's going to put you on uh, this portion. What are you going? What do you want to play? And it was like getting pulled over with two ounces of weed in your pocket or something. Your heart goes up in your throat and you go, Oh my God. And before I knew it, I was out on stage playing a fiddle tune with the great rhythm player, Charlie Collins. What, what team did you play? Do you know? I played drunken Billy goat. which is a tune I learned off picking and fiddling by the Dillards and Byron. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mr. Acuff liked that tune, so I played that tune. It was, again, only Roy Acuff had the, the seniority to do that. To bring and, a kid out. Yeah. So, yes, it would have been a good break within the musical establishments of Nashville. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would have been a smarter thing to do than move into Louisville and play in five nights a week at a bar. Right. But... Yeah, that wasn't where my heart lie, and it wasn't where my musical 
interest was. I mean, this, but this comes up over and over again, and this is this is really interesting to me. Like, so we, last time you were on, we talked a little bit about the Bluegrass Alliance because we talked about Tony, you know, like how you and Tony had gotten together. But what I've never, so the, the Bluegrass Alliance kind of leads to Newgrass Revival. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Is, is it the same thing that happened there? Like, you couldn't make the music that you wanted to make within the traditional Bluegrass world of like Bluegrass Alliance, so that you had to start this other band to make the music that you wanted to make, uh, to push it where you wanted to go. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I wasn't. We weren't that focused. No, it literally was this. We had a five-piece band, the Bluegrass Alliance. Tony was in the band one year, and uh, then he exited to play with J.D. Crow. His brother Larry was in Crow's band, yeah. and, you know, they, him and Larry were close, and... And Tony really loved Crow's music. And, and and we used to go hear Crow on every Monday night in Lexington from Louisville. What's it, 80 miles away? We go. They had a different job. They played six nights a week, five of them at the Holiday Inn. And, another, and the Monday night, they played somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So we'd go on Monday nights. Tonight, we were off and hear them with, you know, that was when it was Larry Rice and Manlin Doyle on guitar, Doyle Lawson. Yeah. And I think Doyle Lawson's one of the greatest rhythm players I've ever heard. And J.D. and Bobby Sloan. So then now Tony exited the group. Curtis Birch came on board on guitar and dobro. So now our group, the Bluegrass Alliance, was Courtney Johnson banjo, Ebo Walker bass, Curtis Birch on guitar and dobro, me on the mandolin, and Lonnie Pierce on fiddle. Well, we'd had a falling out with Lonnie Pierce, and we, you know, you can use the word, we want to fire you, but it wasn't like that. It was a partnership. So we told Lonnie we wanted him to leave the band. And that's when he informed us, you can't fire me. I own the name. <laughs> and guess what? He did. He had gone oh, out and trademarked that name in the Kentucky trademark. He owned it. So we were like, I think I was the first one to say it. You know, the young smart aleck said, um, well, let us put it this way. We all quit. So four out of five members quit the group. And we started our four-piece New Grass Revival because I could play fiddle too. We didn't want to fiddle all the time. So it was more of a four-piece country gentleman style band or Dillard style. We didn't know what to call ourselves for a little while. I think I, I found an old business card recently that said Walker Birch Johnson Bush or Walker Bush Johnson Birch maybe. I can't remember which way it was. But we, we decided, well, that sounds like a, a terrible law firm. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't do it. And that wouldn't print out well. And And at the time, a lot of people were, uh, you know, some sort of variation of the word bluegrass. Mm-hmm. Bluegrass Alliance had called their second album Newgrass, which Ebo had come up with, which was appropriate. So we, using that word Newgrass, started thinking about, you know, what can you Newgrass, Newgrass Revival. And to us, that made sense because it was sort of, um, we weren't reviving anything, but we, but we felt like we were carrying on what had already been started by the Osbournes and Jim and Jess Country Gentlemen and the Dillards and Greenbrier Boys. So we felt we just felt like we were carrying on what they had already started it. So if anybody wanted to know who's the father of Newgrass, I don't know, John Duffy, Son, yeah. Sonny Osborne, yeah. Jesse McReynolds, yeah. uh, Rodney Dillard, I yeah. don't know. It was know? out there music, man. I put on that last, I put on a couple of nights ago, I put on that first Newgrass Revival record <laughs> and I forgot how out there it can be because I think I had an it, idea. That it's those... energetic. <laughs> 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 but when, but uh, when we recorded that record, we, we knew those songs inside and out. I think yeah. we did the whole thing in, in three days. 
But there's a seven minute Lonesome Fiddle Blues on it. Like that's yeah. that's the first everything on it's like three minutes, except for that. Like that's a big eight minute jam. That all got started when we were just uh, now I know where Ebo got the bass lick from. Jolene by Dolly Parton. Right. Ding 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 ding. It's it's the bass lick on Jolene between verses. I didn't realize it at the time, but anyhow, he just started pretty quickly after the four of us decided, well, okay, boy, do we have to practice a lot now. Right. And um, we were having a band practice and Ebo just went into that riff and we started just jamming over it. Well, I'd, I'd been aware of jamming over one chord in, in, from being in rock bands or uh, listening, listening to just enough jazz records to know okay. that was, you know, it just wasn't really done with bluegrass instruments yet so much. So we started playing this riff and playing in D minor and just, you know, we'd gone on for a while. And all of a sudden, Courtney, our banjo player, the way I remember it, Courtney busted into Lonesome Fiddle Blues by Master Clemens. We didn't know when the record came out we were supposed to have credited Millie Clements with the writing of it. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, we put Vassar Clements. Uh, and that became an arrangement where we would jam between the times that each person would play the melody of Lonesome Fiddle Blues. It's so out there, man. It's when out there we did it, now, And when man. we did it in the studio, that, you know, I literally would, on that take, laid the mandolin down, picked up the fiddle, plays a fiddle solo, got done with that put it back down, got the mandolin back up and finished the tune. So that's the way we recorded it at the time. When I read uh, biographies of you and when I read articles about Newgrass Revival back then, I, I come across two things. I come across this idea that I'll see things that are like Newgrass Revival were pilloried by the establishment of bluegrass or they were yelled at by traditional bluegrass. They were attacked by traditional bluegrass audiences. And then I sometimes find interviews where you go like, oh, you know, people got it. You know, other musicians got it. You know, traditional musicians got it. Like mm -hmm. we were we were friends. We got along with everybody. Did you actually get any shit from audiences? Like did were there in my mind, there are like dudes in, in who, who look like I don't know, who look like they're generals in Vietnam sitting in lawn chairs going like, get those hippies off the stage. Like was there did you that know, actually it, ever happen? It, it wasn't really a, a vocal yelling at us or anything. The way the bluegrass audience did it at the time, and and I've experienced this many times in my life, where um, you know you brought your own lawn chair, yeah. So when you got up to storm out at what the hell are they playing moment, um, you wouldn't just get up; you'd get up and you'd snap at you. We call them chair snappers. So you, the the chair snappers would get up. <laughs> And you'd hear snap, 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 <laughs> give you, try to give you a little dirty look as they walked off. But that really was the extent of. It wasn't like Bob Dylan. No one was yelling Judas no, at you when you were on no, stage no, or anything no, like that. No, no, Because you know? we weren't the only band doing it because generally New Deal String Band was on the bill too. And so was a group from the Northeast called Breakfast Special, which featured Tony Trishka, uh, Andy Statman. Uh, Kenny Kosek on yeah. the fiddle. So they were playing very progressive stuff. And Andy would play the saxophone with them as well. Tony played pedal steel. And the their band. solos were a little more atonal than yours were. Like uh, they, they, oh, they man. Were yeah. I mean, Andy Statman to this day, uh, he's over my head, right? And yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so we were one of us three. And, uh, the, and, and, and not to mention, Carlton Haney was the main promoter that would hire us in that world. 
And uh, one time I said, Carlton, could we play earlier in the night? Because we never seem to get on before 11 or 12. He said, well, boys, you could, but but that's when your people are up. And um, <laughs> so it would get to be midnight, and the, all three bands, New Deal String Band, Breakfast Special, and Newgrass Revival, hadn't played yet. And we knew that, it, you know, whoever had to go last, you're really down to nothing. Right. So the three of us, the three groups would band together and just <laughs> – play together oh really we did it many a time on carlton haney's festivals so yeah the chair snappers were really but the musicians you know and and even bill monroe knew that we loved his music yeah and that we respected him and his music we meant no disrespect by playing it the way we heard it by playing like we play and and what good would it do us to just copy Bill Monroe or Jimmy Martin or the Stanleys? Stanley's. But but yes, certainly the you know the Osborne brothers treated us well. Didn't weren't really around Jim and Jesse that much. Jesse's always been really nice to me. But you know when we befriended the Dillards, they well okay. Ebo Walker, our bass player, took his name from a Dillard song. Yeah, because he's Ebo Walker. So the musicians were always, as a matter of fact, Mac Wiseman always was really nice to us and it's a it's a wonder because the first time i ever jumped on a on a festival stage ronnie mccurry sent me a a tape of it if you call them still gone tapes to my phone recently yeah and i was just sitting in with the bluegrass alliance and i was 17 it was uh, labor day weekend 69 in reedsville north carolina and now i know that back then that the young group uh would be the ones that backed mac wiseman the newest people on the block backed Mac Wiseman. Oh, wow. And Mac didn't pay a band for 30 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> didn't have to. And boy, he was a great rhythm player. And he, so Mac was up there and he was singing. Um, I now know what it was. It was one of the worst embarrassments of my life that I did to myself. Yeah, I'm playing along with Bluegrass Alliance. They just had me playing along. I was still in high school, but I was friends with them. And, um, Mac saying, I'll be all smiles tonight, a waltz. And somewhere in my brain, I remember thinking, I'm going to step up here and play the most outrageous solo anybody's ever heard. They're all going to know I'm the greatest mailing player, blah, blah, in my mind and uh, in your 17 year old brain. And Oh my God, it, it's so awful. It, I think it's the worst mandolin playing I've ever heard in my life by anybody. I was, I, I went into double time. I, I was playing my, I was playing Yorman Kalkin and Licks. I was, it was just so out of place. And Mac should have told me to get off the stage right then, but he was nice enough at the end of this awful solo I played. And Mac just kind of looked at the audience. He goes. How about them apples? <laughs> <laughs> and Ronnie McCurry found it and sent it to me like about a year ago. And somewhere it's it has left my phone in a fit of good taste. <laughs> but I, I kept it on there for a long time just to just to turn it on and go, okay, I, yeah. I got to stay remember, humble a little bit. Got to remember what I did. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad. Okay. And then and you heard Now it. we get off stage and. Yeah. Good old Courtney Johnson, who yeah. I'd ridden there with. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney just walked up to me and said something to, I'll clean it up a little bit, but Courtney just said to me, you suck. <laughs> 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 what? He goes, 
what is wrong with you? <laughs> Again, I just cleaned it way up, but what's wrong with you? What are you thinking? I don't know. He said, don't ever do that again. Oh, man. <laughs> so I always had a musical big brother to kind of kick me hard when I did something yeah. stupid. I'm happy you brought up Mac Wiseman, and, and I'm happy you brought up Bill Monroe. Can you set the record straight about the Bill Monroe thing? Like, there's the, there's the, the there's the story, right, that Bill Monroe said about Newgrass Revival that they, that ain't no part of nothing. Now he didn't he didn't say well he and I think he said that about uh, many things, but yes, uh, the the story it was 1976, Martinsville, Virginia, and uh, we knew Kenny Baker. I'd played on a, a one or two of Kenny's records by now, and uh, I got to play on Baker's Dozen. Uh, Kenny's fiddle album. So, and and I met Kenny through being backstage at A Cup's dressing room. And when Kenny uh, took Byron's Burline's place in Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys, I knew of the great Kenny Baker already. And so, yes, I got to watch and learn at the knee of Kenny Baker when I was a teenager. So now it's uh, seventy six. What am I going on? Maybe I was twenty four then, and. Um, they didn't have a banjo player that day in the, in the Bluegrass Boys. So Kenny comes up to Courtney Johnson, who, if those of you that never saw Courtney, is a very similar look to Willie Nelson. They actually kind of looked alike. And um, Courtney uh, was standing there. Kenny Baker comes up and says, uh, hey, Courtney, we ain't got a banjo man today. You want Would you play with us? And Courtney said, yeah. I mean, me, I would have given – I played the banjo then. I mean, if he'd asked me, I'd have said, yeah, man, put me on – uh, but Courtney was the kind of person he didn't care a bit if he ever played a note with Bill Monroe or not. So Courtney said, yeah, sure. And, uh, so now Monroe comes up and by the way, the reason I say Monroe is because he personally corrected me once when I called him Mr. Monroe, he said, Oh, it's Monroe. <laughs> so that's why they call him big Mun. Yeah. Monroe yeah. is the way the bluegrass boys say it. Yeah. That's the way Del McCurry says it. You yeah. Know? So I was corrected personally by him. Yeah. So that's why, <laughs> Uh, even though I grew up saying Monroe, I've learned to say Monroe right. and talking to him. Right. So Courtney and I are standing there and, and Kenny's putting Bill on the spot. He's going, Hey Bill, Courtney's a good banjo man. Let's get him up pick with us today. And Bill kind of looked at Courtney's head, head to toe and back up the head and said, no, sir. Now Bill and, and Kenny were like an old married couple. And, and Kenny, oh, come on, Bill. Now let's get Courtney up there. He's a good banjo man. We need a good banjo man today. We ain't got one. And uh, Courtney and, and looks at Bill, and Bill looks at him, and Bill said, uh, "No, sir, I won't have it." So for the third time, Kenny Baker now is now he's gone into you're putting the guy. Look, it's his band. He already said twice he doesn't want it. And so now Kenny, you know, goes. Oh, come on, Bill. You know, now we need a good banjo man. Courtney can do the job. And Bill was, I think he was just trying to get out of what an, an uncomfortable situation Kenny Baker had put him in and now says, uh, uh, what, what is it you call that music you do? And Courtney was like, uh, um, um, new grass. And Bill said, yes, I hate that. And turned around and walked away. I hate that. That's how he got out of the wow. uncomfortable situation. Wow. Whether he hated it or not, I yeah. don't know. It was a way for him to get away from that the whole thing. That was his way. And it wasn't long after that, I went up to, uh, there was about three steps up to this small backstage with a with a door that shut. And I went up to shake Bill's hand and he just slammed that door right in my face. I went, okay, we're oh my <laughs> we're God. making our mark here. But at any rate. Did it bother you? No. 
<laughs> not, no. not really. No, no, no. no. Uh, you know, Bill Monroe was a, excuse me, Monroe was, <laughs> was just a character and I miss him. Yeah. You know, I miss us all having Bill Monroe to kind of look up to or, you know, I mean. But it didn't bother you that this like this patriarch of the genre. No, I when when Byron was playing fiddle with him and Roland White was now on guitar where there was a jam session one day. And Roland had this beautiful mandolin, the likes of which I had not ever played. It was a Randy Wood built F5 style Gibson style mandolin. And it sounded incredible. So I got to play Roland's mandolin. We're in this jam session, Roland on guitar, Byron on fiddle, Vic Jordan, the banjo player. And uh, I didn't, Bill knew me as a fiddle player more than mandolin. And so I was standing there playing Roland's mandolin and um, Bill needed to stop the jam session because the bluegrass boys need to get ready for the show. Mm -hmm. So he did, boys, let, 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 let's get ready for the show now. And uh, Bill looked at me on mandolin and, and he said, and I want you to stick with that fiddle. We ain't got we ain't got enough good young fiddlers coming up now. You stay with that fiddle. And as soon as he said that, my my teenage brain goes, "All right, I'm getting somewhere on this mandolin. I'm a mandolin playing son of a gun now, Billy." And um, so it was, yes. Yeah, so he knew me as more. So in that way, it actually encouraged me to go. Okay, I must be getting somewhere on the on the mandolin if Bill don't want me playing it. Oh, <laughs> man, oh man, you really had like this ability to. How do I put this? Like you had this ability to, to make people mad by playing an instrument, <laughs> <laughs> or to or to like to not worry about it, to not to like really progress the genre of music to do stuff. And, and listen, I know Jim and Jesse were doing it, the Osborne Brothers. Well, but the the Newgrass Revivals, and in, in even when you talk about the Pat Flynn Bela era, really different music. And what I'm hearing from you is that this is a genre that can be baked in tradition. I, t I took something Bill Monroe said to a friend of mine once that had written a mandolin tune yeah. and wanted it to sound as much like Monroe as possible. And he played it for Bill and I happened to see this. And um, Monroe said to him, well, that's real good. What can you do on your own? I took that to mean that Bill Monroe was encouraging us to play our own music, to get your own sound. So that's, in a way, what I heard said to a friend of mine, I think it was encouragement that he wanted you to have your own sound and that he, although he liked it when people obviously paid homage to his music, I think he respected you more if you tried to have your own. So that's where I was coming from, really, with the attitude that, and, and when Bill liked the Bluegrass Alliance when he hired us at Bean Blossom in 1971, he virtually gave us the song Body and Soul. See the train coming round the bend Carrying the one that I love Her beautiful body And he said, here's a song that I wrote and I think you boys could do a good job on it. So we had worked up Body and Soul with Tony Rice in, on guitar, and Tony sang the high line on the chorus as his voice was higher then. And uh, so I, you know, we, we carried it on into Newgrass Revival, and we recorded. I had switched to Slide Mandolin looking for some different sound. But Bill, you know, he he was friendly with us, and but he, he, he didn't like the Newgrass Revival. And one of the reasons was, I can say this now, and I've said it before, I said it in a documentary, that when Lonnie Pierce left our band, 
he wasn't very honorable about things, and he went around to certain bluegrass promoters telling them that New Grass Revival sold heroin to school children, which scared the heck out of a, a you know, yeah. and, you know, our looks alone. So yeah. Bill graciously... And there was weed happening. And the, Bill, there was, of course you know, there yeah, was. Yeah, you know? and, but Bill graciously ever told people, I, I don't like that long hair. So at least he didn't go around perpetuating the rumors that we were, you know, dope dealers. And uh, so Bill just told it he didn't like that, that hippie looks and he wasn't going to have it on his festival. And he said that to us too. It's his festival he can have. Yeah. But his brother Birch would hire us to come up and play at Bean Blossom Brown County Jamboree on Sunday afternoons. New, new Country? Uh, sorry, not New Country. New, new Grass Revival. Revival. Yeah, yeah one, of, one, of our, one of the first people that mispronounced our band name was Birch Monroe. And I think he called us the New Grass Revival Boys. Here they are, the New Grass Revival Boys. And, not, <laughs> and, and on our very last job in 1989, opening for the Grateful Dead, uh, Oakland Coliseum, the best job in America to have. Our last show, we got on that and we opened for the dead and Bill Graham himself mispronounced our band name. What did he call you? He must have thought he had it wrong or something because he went, there was a pause, he went, the New Grass, Bluegrass Revival. <laughs> From Nashville, Tennessee, would you welcome please the New Grass, Bluegrass Revival. <laughs> and you can hear me and John count in the background going, wah! <laughs> and so it was perfect. It was yeah. a perfect way to go out. And then at, at the end of our set, Bill Graham came back. He had obviously realized what he did. And he came back and goes, uh, New Grass Revival from Nashville. Great band, great band. Yeah. And that's all he said. I was happy you mentioned that the last gig was opening for the Grateful Dead uh, with New Grass Revival. Because I wanted to run something by the Bale said. So I had Bale on for this thing last uh -huh. year. Okay. And it's a bit weird to talk to you about, but I want to I want to ask you about it anyway. And I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase him. So he didn't necessarily say this. He said that the the his time in New Grass Revival, there was a lot of like and I saw this in the documentary as well. Uh -huh. Like, are we going to be a country band? Like, are we going to be accepted by the Nashville mainstream sort of country industry? I saw, uh, I think it was like a variety magazine, some kind of Nashville sound magazine that had this thing as like, is this their moment? Is this the, 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 the best instrumentalists in the town? Is this their moment to hit the mainstream in country music? And Bela said something to me along the lines of like, if only that scene that exists now for jam music had existed back then, like, Everything would have been different for us. Is I, that how do you feel about that? I would have to agree with that. Yeah, we had played in in front of so many different kinds of audiences. I mean, we had fronted for so many you know rock and roll shows. We had fronted country shows. I mean, I got in the early seventy. I can remember us opening for Jesse Colin Young. You know, when it was that kind of thing. Goose Creek Symphony had a thing going. We played with them and. Hell, we even opened for Cheech and Chong a couple of nights, and <laughs> that was an experience. Yeah. <laughs> they were great guys to deal with. Yeah, uh, they were really nice. Um, yeah, at the time, you know, I mean, what the way we got on Capitol Records was literally that Jim Fogelsong, the president of the label, his wife Tony, heard us in a bar, and went and told Jim. She goes, "I heard an amazing group last night. You got to hear these guys because they could. They're really good." So Mr. Fogelsong came to hear us and Jim was, Jim just said, I want you guys to record for Capital. I don't know if we know how to sell you. You guys just do what you do and we'll worry about selling it. So the perception that Capital Records told us what to do or shaped our 
direction in any way, that's not accurate in that us and our producer, Garth Fundus, and Garth was very successful in working with Don Williams. Garth had been engineering our record. Yeah, we had worked together in the past. And then when Bale and Pat joined, I knew it was too hot for me to handle the producing. I, you know, I needed to not produce and just be in the band. So Garth produced our record on the boulevard, and he was a big part of the package when we went to Capitol. And so, no, any any sounds you hear by us maybe making an attempt to be on the country radio was all our ideas of how we do it and what we would do. Yeah. I mean, on our first record on Capitol, we had Jamie Oldacre, you know, from Tulsa and the Clapton's band playing drums with us. I right. knew Jamie from Leon Russell. And uh, so we were trying different things and it was up to us. And there's a few of those songs that we recorded. Again, we chose them. Mm-hmm. But looking back, he's going, yeah, you know, that was kind of a, a over the top attempt to, to fit in. Right. But at the time, it did seem like the country market was the more place to go because they were uh, starting to get newer sounds in the, in the world of commercial country music, most notably Ricky Skaggs probably at that time. But 23 years later, I can look and go and, and agree with Bela. Yeah. I wish we could have been sold in a rock and roll jam market. It just didn't exist. Then. It didn't exist. Especially this, like that Colorado. I mean, I don't know like, you know, like, I don't think you do a lot of gigs in Canada. Like that scene We've is, only, you know, been on a few festivals, yeah. but that was, that didn't exist at all. And now, I mean, that that's, that's a huge part of the bluegrass market now yes. is that thing, you know? Yes. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, the revival broke up before the jam grass scene happened. And you kind of started, I mean, you were kind of the, as much as you say, I'm not the father of new grass. I feel like you are the spiritual father but of we, that thing. Yeah. And you know, but we, we were headstrong and we, we did our music our way. So Within those commercial, if if we were making commercial yeah, kind of records, so. you still had Bayless tunes like Bigfoot and Seven by Seven, and I had I had actually kind of stopped writing. I I got so immersed in the business of the band that I when when the band broke up, I just needed a break from business. I was I was over I, it, business overload. I just couldn't stand the thought of music business you were running the band you were like you i was were, yeah i mean now that i realize because I, I recently you know we were between managers or what have you and i could and i meticulously would keep a phone log of what i and i i mean i remember talking so much on the phone i got tendonitis in my left elbow from holding the phone and um you know i would literally be on it about eight hours a day just hammering hammering for our band and, and I was the one in charge, you know, working with a booking agent and this and that. And, and it was a partnership, but I was more or less the spokesman because, you know, it was our idea. Oh, sure. We can get this on country radio. We'll do ain't that peculiar, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because we had John's great singing mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, looking back, we were so, we were still so far left of center mm-hmm. of what was getting mm-hmm. on country radio. But one day I was working for Randy Scruggs, who called me as Randy, the producer, and said, I got a song I want you to play on. Okay. And uh, the song was called Calling Baton Rouge. And at the end of that session, I believe the singer's name was Ed Ratzloff. Uh, Randy was producing. I said, can I have a tape of this, Randy? Sure. And man, the next day I said, guys, I found a song. Calling Baton Rouge. 
So Colin Baton Rouge made it to number 36 in country airplay. But at this point, Capitol Records had found out we were breaking up and they they pulled the promo. They said, well, they're breaking up. We're not going to spend another dime. Yeah, Bela had decided to leave and there yeah. had been a, yeah. And Bela had decided to leave and we... But we had agreed to finish the year together. Right. And, and, and that's it. why they didn't push it, because they knew you guys were breaking up. That's why yep. they didn't. And Garth Brooks was in the meeting when he heard them say they were going to pull the capital on Newgrass Revival. Well, Garth was this new guy on Capital too, and he was starting to get charts. And uh, he just logged that away. He, he said to him at the time, man, don't pull a promo. It's, it's a top 10. I know it is. He goes, yeah, but they're not going to be around. So... A couple of years later, I was working for Garth on a record, and, and he says, you know, I'm thinking about cutting Colin Baton Rouge because I still think it's a top 10 record. I yeah. said, oh, if you do it, it's going to be a top 10. Yeah. I said, well, if you do it, I know some cats that know how to play it. And so he, he cut it the whole thing with the normal group of musicians he recorded all his records with, and then the four Newgrass Revival members and Jerry Douglas all overdubbed at the same time. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. All John and I had to do was sing the same parts we sang. All I had to do was play the same fiddle yeah. part, but it was a key lower from E down I need to D. a cup of coffee and a couple dollars change calling Baton Rouge. Operator, won't you put me on through? I got to send my love down to Baton Rouge. So that's, Yeah. But I accidentally played on a version of that and took it to the band. I mean, it's an interesting thing because it all could have stopped there. And I mean, like, and just in the interest of time, like, we could talk about so much more. We could talk about Emilou, the Nash Ramblers. We could talk about all this other stuff. But like, the the it could have stopped there. But now, I mean, Sam, you're playing bigger audiences than Christ. You know, like it's the biggest thing. You mean like you play massive crowds that come out to see you in festivals? Yeah, in festivals all over. You know, and it's it's a really beautiful thing. Do you? And I asked Bailey this too. Did you? Learn anything from that time in Newgrass Revival that you applied either like, I don't want to do that again, or I got to make sure to do that again, that led to this like. Yeah, I learned just because you're in a band that a lot of people like doesn't mean they, that they're going to go hear each member do their solo trip. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes years to build back up. Yeah, but you ba- did. Bela's worked hard. I've worked on it. John has. We, we all have. Is there something you learned about like audiences? Is there something you learned about? Music that like led to the the Sandbush thing being as big as it is right now, I mean, being as well loved as you are right now. Uh, I know it's a weird thing to think about. I don't know if I don't know if I've thought that much about it, other than it. If anything, we had the security of knowing that we could succeed in front of an audience, right? So you know, you, you carry that part of it with you, and the parts you felt positive about the group with you bring that to your new trip. But but I went I went straight to Emmylou Harris's band for five years and that was a wonderful experience and it was the break I needed from doing business I and all I had to that. do was play and sing. Yeah. You didn't have to be in charge. Didn't want to be. That's nice, eh? Yes. So it wasn't. And in '96, when I stopped, when that group stopped in '95, then I played some for Law. I love it. But basically, up in the year of '90. Uh, at one point I played like 86 shows with the Flectones one year. So I was kind of a, a fourth member of the Flectones for a little, for one year. Yeah. And, uh, and that got my appetite whetted to improvise again. I had learned more about singing with Emmy Lou. So the combination of learning more about singing with her and the joy of singing from playing with her and then improvising with the Flectones, I knew I wanted to have a group that, that I could sing and improvise in again. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, the thing you have right now, you know? I see that. I've, I've watched the live streams. i watch the, you know? Well, I have a great bunch of musicians I get to play with, and I'm fortunate in that way. 
Yeah, the people do. They 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 have a lot of love for you. You know, I can tell. You know, it's a nice thing, man. I'm saying, I know. I'm, well, I'm the old guy in the band that they all laugh at now, but yeah. that's fine. <laughs> that's good. Somebody has to. Um, and this new record is really beautiful. The John Harford uh, record. I really love listening to it. I'm I'm okay with it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, right. it's hard to listen to things you do. We had our disagreements. That's and, so. You know. Yeah. But he was a person I looked up to, and. Some advice he gave me, I took. Some I didn't take that I should have. Yeah. You know, but. Um, what was the advice that he gave you that you took? Well, it's one thing. It's kind of personal, but I. He, he talked to me about giving yourself a positive little pep talk before you go on stage. And it was something to the effect of. And, and, I, and I need to be alone and just shut my eyes for a minute uh, to just. Say you know I I know I'm gonna I'm gonna go play and I'm gonna do my best I I know I can't always play as well as I want to, but I'm gonna go enjoy this and uh, you know don't don't get bogged down if I miss a note and yeah. uh, but I'm gonna go on and, and and enjoy what I do and and uh, I've worked for it uh, I should be here but I know I can't always hit everything I'm going after but I'm gonna go enjoy the process two questions before you go one um and I, I've been asking this to everybody how do you feel about the bluegrass genre today how, how, how are your feelings about how it's the health of it well I'd have to say we're in a pretty I mean I think we're in a very good time and one of those reasons is that almost like originators of styles are still around so youngsters and by youngsters I'm talking teenagers early 20s playing like Del McCurry. So maybe they never heard Bill Monroe or Jimmy Martin, but they're hearing Del and he's a direct descendant of a he's he was a bluegrass boy and he learned it and he was one of the best bluegrass boys. And uh, so you still have Del McCurry and on the other side of the coin you have on a totally different genre or ways uh you have, you know, Molly Tuttle, Sierra Hull, and a youngster that just turned 30 that comes to mind that I'm proud of and he's doing great, of course, is Billy Strings. Massive. And, and, yeah. and the good fortunes that are coming Billy's way, well, he deserves it. Yeah. Yeah, Billy was born when New Grass Revival was still, I mean, he, but he was like eight years old when we broke up. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm proud that the New Grass Revival was, was in on, if anybody ever says we were an influence, I'm proud of that. Well, I was thinking about that. I mean, you must feel that. I mean, or, or at least let me say it to you, that like when I've watched Billy and you tell me these stories about like, hey, we were, we were getting up to do an eight, nine minute long jams and people were clicking their chairs and getting away. And now he's up playing bluegrass and he's playing straight bluegrass and doing nine, 10 minute jams. Well, and, and, and he, I hope you feel your influence on this. And he's got a big audience. And, yeah. You know, I I go with the attitude is that helps us all. Yeah. And uh, I was asked, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I said, do you think it'd be really hard to break in the music business if you were just a young act? And I, I didn't really have a good answer, but the one I came up with, I said, well, probably not harder than trying to stay relevant at age 65. Uh -huh. You know, and I'm now <laughs> 70. Um, so I think, you know, to be able to, to keep an audience is a there to, you know, I'm still, I'm still the guy that tells our booking agent, yeah, but we need a young audience. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a young audience, you don't have an audience because mm -hmm. people my age don't go to shows, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe not as much as you once did, obviously. Yeah. And uh, so I, I 
think we're in a pretty healthy time when you've got all these. I mean, heck, one of the best uh, bands going that is now playing progressive style bluegrass is the Traveling McCurries. Mm-hmm. And it was Dell that encouraged them to get out and start their own thing because he said, I'm not always going to be here for you, boys, and mm-hmm. you need to. And so once the Traveling McCurries got Cody Kilby, they really got a, their own band sound now. So they're one of the best. And you got this, you know, I mean, I hesitate to start naming the groups I like so much because you've got all these great youngish, youngish now. Because, uh-huh. you know, I remember when Leftover Salmon was the young band and mm-hmm. I would go play with them. Yonder Mountain, I used to ride their band bus, young in their band life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Green Sky Bluegrass, same way I would play with them sometimes. Um, the String Dusters, you know, Steep Canyon Rangers. I mean, there's great music being played on bluegrass style instruments and people are not, they don't feel they have to be locked in to just play bluegrass, Mm -hmm. but the bluegrass influence is there. And so that in that way, it's a very healthy genre. You know, I've got a t-shirt at home. It says what the words you see, the biggest are bluegrass and boys, but bluegrass ain't just for boys anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when you got, you know, banjo pickers like Allison Brown and Kristen Benson and, uh, and and you got Molly on guitar and Sierra and, you know, the, uh, Becky Buller on fiddle and vocals and, and, and Bronwyn on fiddle. You know, it's, it's important that, you know, it isn't just, it ain't just for boys anymore. And that's pretty important. What are you uh, most proud of when you look back? And I'm going to make you look back for a second. What are you most proud of when you look back? Well, what, one of the things that occurred just a couple of years ago was that our band, New Grass Revival, was inducted in the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. And if, you know, uh, awards... I've always said, if only awards helped you play and sing better, wouldn't that be great? Well, yeah. they don't, but it's nice to have a nod of appreciation from people that were that were your peers that that voted on you for for those for that type of acknowledgement. So, I, one of the things I guess I'm most proud about is how, how I've been able to uh, not only meet some of my heroes, but then get to play music with them and 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 become friends. It's um, it's an amazing journey, man. And like, I think it can speak for a lot of people who got into this music, or maybe through a brother or something like that. Which I also know you had, you had you had stuff to do with. And then you get into Bill Monroe and the Stanleys, and then you start hearing like you're playing and and you and Bela together, or you know some of those Tony records, and you go like, oh wait, there's something fucking else going on here. You know what I mean? And it's such a beautiful way to be welcomed into the music. You know, so much of the great music that I've listened to over the years has come from you, or you've been indirectly involved in. And we've been looking forward to you ever since the beginning we started this thing. You were the one of the guys we wanted to talk to the most. So thanks for everything, man. And Thank thanks, you. Thanks for talking to us today. My pleasure. It's, uh, you know, I, I now know there isn't there isn't ever this moment where you go, ah, oh, I'm an elder statesman now. I can relax because <laughs> I'm just still trying. I'm just still trying to improve on my playing and singing. Yeah, Sam. Thanks so much, man. Thanks. that's it for Sam Bush. I'm so happy to like look him in the eye and go like, I, I, I'm a bit of a collector of Bill Monroe stories. And I just, I've heard so many like apocryphal stories about Sam and, and Bill Monroe. And it was just nice to get, nice to get it on the record. Like where the answer is like less sensational, but almost more interesting what he said about that. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot to Sam Bush. Uh, thanks a lot for the the chat. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Toy Heart is produced 
by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy Reitnauer-Jacobs. With help, as always, from the entire BGS team, creative director Shelby Williamson, our editor, Chris Jacobs, managing editor, Justin Hiltner, all of the writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for Roots Culture Redefined. You can discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. Our theme song, Toy Heart by Bill Monroe, was performed by Chris Eldridge and Kristen Andres. And that just reminded me, one of the working titles we had for Toy Heart was No Part of Nothing. No Part of Nothing, which is, again, we talked about that, like something I had heard Bill Monroe had said about Newgrass Revival. Stay tuned for more new episodes coming up this season. The likes of Larry Sparks, Lori Lewis, Allison Krauss, Mike Compton. Uh, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, you can hear full interviews with the likes of Jerry Douglas and Allison Brown and Bela Fleck, wherever you get your podcast. You can also hear our three-part Tony Rice retrospective, which we recorded uh, with, with Sam Bush, actually, at one point. Um, shortly after Tony passed. Uh, if you like the show, share it with a friend who loves bluegrass music. Stay tuned for so much more coming up this season on Toy Heart. We'll see you soon. Later on. <laughs>